Let's uh, let's open with prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, Lord, we uh, thank you for once again bringing us together to study your word, to to worship you, to uh, Lord, just to to fellowship with one another and to seek to bring glory and honor to your name. Um, God, I just pray that you would be with us as we continue to study uh, how we got your word, that we would just come to a, a, a deeper understanding of these things, Lord, that we would uh, just realize how vital these things are, that um, that we have a, a high and proper view of your word. Um, Lord, just how destructive it is to the church when uh, your word is considered as uh, being uh, not entirely trustworthy. Uh, God, I just I just pray that as we consider these things, that our trust in your word would grow, uh, that our love for your word would grow. Um, God, just that we would continue to, to study your word, uh, to view it as the very truth of the creator of the universe. And that uh, through that, you would uh, just change us, that you would make us uh, more like you, and that you would glorify yourself in us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right. So we're coming very near the end of our study on how we got the Word of God, how we got the Bible. Um, Just briefly to review, um, we uh, began by talking about the historical question of how we got the Bible. Um, We talked about uh, the copying of the manuscripts. We talked about uh, the fact that they, in the process of copying, uh, were corrupted, just as any hand-copied document would be. Um, But we also talked about how we are able to restore the text uh, to its, um, basically to its original state with sufficient certainty that uh, we can trust it. we have talked about the canon, how, how it is that we look at it and we determine which books actually belong in the Bible um, and historically how that took place. Um, and we also talked about translations, how the word of God has been translated over time and some, uh, some issues of translation philosophy and just as we consider uh, modern English translations, what kinds of things we should be looking for. Um, so that's historically how we got from um, the, the prophets and apostles providing us with the word of God and it traveling through the centuries uh, to our day. It's very important that we understand those things, especially as uh, people attack the word of God and say we really just can't know what it says because of these issues. Um, it's important that we have this historical background to, to know how we got the, the word of God because those who attack it are going to uh, usually be ignorant of these things, and if they're not ignorant, they're going to very very much cherry-pick what information they tell you about um, the history of how we got the Bible. Um, and so it's important that we actually know all the facts so that we can call them on it and say, uh, you're, you're misrepresenting things. But then we began talking about it from a theological perspective. How is it that the Word of God came to be written in a book um, in the first place? Um, and so uh, last time we were together, we talked about the doctrine of inspiration, the, just the idea that the, that the Bible, that the, that the books we have in the Bible um, are not of human origin, that they are uh, breathed out by God. They are inspired. Um, and so they have the character of being the very word of God and not the words of men. 
And of course, that raises the issue of, is there error in the Bible? Um, and that's what the doctrine of inerrancy seeks to deal with. Um, and as we pointed out last time, the doctrine of inerrancy flows from the doctrine of inspiration. Uh, because the Bible is the word of God, that God is the source of it, then by definition, it's going to be inerrant. It's not going to have error in it. Um, and of course, people have challenged that. Some people have attempted to say that the, that the Bible is, in some sense, the word of God. Uh, but that we can still say that it has errors in it. Um, and there's also um, lots of qualifications we have to make in terms of what it, inerrancy is and what inerrancy isn't, because it's often misrepresented. So we're going to begin looking at just the question of inerrancy um, in all these different perspectives. Now, um, we are going to be making heavy use of the Chicago Statement on biblical, iner biblical inerrancy. Um, I know we quoted from it a little bit uh, last time we were together. Uh, we're going to be we're going to be looking at a lot more of it uh, this week. Um, and uh, if you're if you're interested in following along, it's and you have your you know your phone on you, it's pretty easy to just you know pop it up uh, on your phone. Uh, I apologize if you're using your phone also for your Bible because that's going to make it difficult flipping back and forth because we'll be looking at texts of, of scripture, but uh, but in any event, it, even if you aren't able to follow along, um, I'll be reading these things, and it's definitely worth your time to uh, look it up sometime and read through it. It's not a terribly long document, and it's a, it's a really good, thorough examination of uh, the doctrine of inerrancy. So... Um, just, you know, we are largely going to be using this as our outline, and I'm not going to be, like, following it necessarily exactly in order, um, so we're, we will be jumping around a little bit. But we're going to begin by looking at um, Article 9. If I remember correctly, uh, last time we talked about, I think, our Article 6 through 8, something like that. I can't remember exactly, but uh, we're picking up largely where we left off. Um, but Article 9... Uh, again, these have uh, a statement of affirmation and a statement of denial. But Article 9 says, We affirm that inspiration, though not conferring omniscience, guaranteed true and trustworthy utterance on all matters of which the biblical authors were moved to speak and write. And we deny that uh, the finitude or fallenness of these writers, by necessity or otherwise, introduced distortion or falsehood into God's word. So when, we, um, when we're looking at this doctrine of inerrancy um, and say, well, what, you know, we, I, I know I made the distinction last time that uh, technically speaking, when we're talking about inspiration, um, it's, it's, prop, it's most proper to say that the Bible is what's inspired, that the, that the authors who wrote the Bible um, are not the ones who are inspired, even though sometimes you know we, we do speak that way. Uh, really, technically, from a biblical perspective, inspiration applies to Scripture and not to the biblical authors. So, when we consider, you know, what, you know, did this do something to the authors? Um, it, it's very clearly stated here um, in the Chicago Statement um, that that there's no idea of them. Uh, becoming omniscient, that they know everything. It's, it's not that God suddenly implanted all divine knowledge into their heads. Um, 
But what he did do was that he guaranteed um, that they would have true and trustworthy utterance. Um, that er everything that they wrote was going to be true. It was not going to have any error. Um, and of course, on the denial side here, um, it's, it's addressing the issue that people would say, well, either because of the finitude of humanity, um, you know, man is not God, he's finite, he has a beginning in time, he has, um, at least physically, an end in time, um, he doesn't know all things, he's not all-powerful, there's all sorts of, uh, of limitations to humanity that God does not experience. Um, and so they would say, well, because of the finitude of man, then that's going to require that the Bible contains errors, since it's, um, you know, since since man, men were the ones who actually wrote it down, um, or the fallenness of the writers, the fact that they're sinful. Um, I mean, we would affirm that all mankind are sinful; they're born in sin, um, and so, well, if they're sinful, they're going to make mistakes, and so, you know, how could it be that the the Bible would be inerrant? It's written by sinful men. Uh, Error must have must have been introduced because the the biblical authors were sinful. That's kind of the um, the challenges that are raised there. Um, in First Thessalonians chapter two, First Thessalonians chapter two, verse thirteen, Paul says, "And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God." which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. So when we consider what, what Paul says there, um, he's talking about um, the people at Thessalonica receiving the word of God. Um, through what means did they receive the word of God? Anybody? First Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. It says, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. So how did they receive the word of God? From Paul and his companions? Yeah, from Paul and his companions. So it's through men that they receive the word of God. Now, does Paul give any kind of indication that, well, because it came through men, it's not really the word of God? Just the opposite, right? He makes it very clear that it's like, you were correct in taking what we said as human instruments as not being of human origin, but being the very word of God. Um, and so when we consider, um, like, I mean, this is something we've mentioned before, what, what is necessary for something to be the word of God? I mean, let's just, let's just take the human agency out of it. What's true of what God speaks? Um, John 17, 17, Jesus says, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. 
So Jesus there identifies the word of God as being true. Uh, Paul, in Romans chapter 3, verse 4, says, uh, By no means let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. And so Paul there also is affirming that the things that God speaks are true. So from a biblical perspective, for something to be the word of God, it has to be without error. Um, that's just in the nature of what it means to be the word of God. And so then you're, you're looking at this situation. It's like, well, we have men. They're finite. They're, they're sinful. Um, yet the word of God is coming through them. Yet we know that the word of God uh, has to be without error. You know, how do we put these things together? Um, and this is this is where people have um, have gone astray. Um, question: Is it correct to say that error is essential to humanness? Do you think that's true? Is it impossible for a human to produce a document? That contains no error. Yes. Sorry. Yes. It's impossible. Or no, I mean, sorry. It's not impossible. It is possible to produce a document that has no error. I could take a document, write down two plus two equals four, and stop it right there. Right. Exactly. Yeah. You could do something as simple as write a document that just says two plus two equals four. It's not going to contain any error. So there's nothing essential to humanness that requires that something be an error. Um, and so the idea that, well, you know, if humans wrote it, then, you know, um, you know, either God just has to override the humanness or it has to have error in it, is just to fundamentally misunderstand what it means to be human. There's nothing uh, inconsistent with something being a human document and in a sense, the Bible is a human document and that God used human authors. Um, but there's nothing inconsistent with that uh, and the idea that it's completely free from error. Um, God is able to superintend the, the work of the human authors in a way that they do not err. Um, it's, I mean, it's like, we're, again, we're capable of making a document that doesn't have any error even apart from the superintendence of God. Um, you know, as long as it's short and simple enough. Um, at, a, at a certain point, it's, it's, it is probably going to happen, you know, if we try to write something long and complicated. But, um, but, uh, but I mean, God is able to simply superintend and make it where um, we don't err. And it's not going to, like, in any sense, override our humanness uh, or be incompatible with the fact that we're sinful. Because, um, again, even as sinful human beings, we can make documents that don't contain any error. Um, as I was reading, one person uh, stated it this way that I thought was really helpful. Uh, it's one thing for God to adapt the teaching of truth to the capacity of human understanding, but it's quite another for him to adopt human errors and present them as divinely revealed truth. So, I mean, when we think about the, the finiteness of human beings and the 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 infiniteness of the truths of God, um, there is a sense in which when God communicates to man, he has to condescend. He has to bring information down to a level that we as finite human beings can understand. Um, 
but to say that that necessarily requires that he bring it down to a level where it's full of error is really just to misunderstand things and it's to basically malign the character of God. God is not required to do that, and he is able to condescend to bring it down to our level without adopting human errors and saying, this is my word, this is what I have said, but yeah, it contains human errors. It's just not something that you're required to do. But so many of the people who attempt to, I mean, obviously if people just reject the Bible altogether, this discussion is kind of irrelevant. But this is a discussion for people who claim that, well, the Bible is in some sense the word of God, but they still want to allow for errors to be in it. And they say, well, man is finite, man is sinful, so it just has to contain error. And there's just no necessity for that to be the case. Now, oftentimes people who make these types of assertions, they might even have good motives. Sometimes they look at it and they say, man, I see so many things in the Bible that they look like they're errors, and when I try to talk to people about Jesus, they point to these things, and boy, I don't have answers for these things. And it's just so much easier if I just say, well, yeah, the Bible could contain some errors, but it's the central message that's true. So you need to believe the central message and don't get caught up on whether the Bible is actually down to every word correct. So oftentimes they have a good motive, and that can be very appealing and deceptive to Christians. They want to evangelize. They want to be able to tell people about Jesus. But if we understand scripturally the way that the Bible teaches the nature of the word of God, that we have to maintain this idea that every single word in God's book is from him and is without error. That is the way that the apostles viewed the word of God. That is the way that Jesus viewed the word of God. And there's nothing in the fact that humans are finite or that they are sinful that is going to require that God accommodate man's errors and allow errors to be in the Bible. Does that all clear, make sense? Hopefully that's a helpful examination of that. We're going to look at the next article in the Chicago Statement, Article 10. We talked about this briefly. Ben raised a question last week, or I guess two weeks ago, last time we had a Sunday school lesson that brought this up. We're going to talk about it in a little more detail. Article 10 says, We affirm that inspiration, strictly speaking, applies only to the autographic text of Scripture, which in the providence of God can be ascertained from available manuscripts with great accuracy. We further affirm that copies and translations of Scripture are the word of God to the extent that they faithfully represent the original. We deny that any essential element of the Christian faith is affected by the absence of the autographs. We further deny that this absence renders the assertion of biblical inerrancy invalid or irrelevant. And I may have just misspoken there about Ben, because there's actually 
a later one that I was specifically thinking of on Ben's statement, but I, somebody may have brought this one up as well. But um, but this is uh, where we're, we're basically we're saying that the, the Bible is inerrant in the original. Um, what we have today um, is uh, the result of copying through the centuries and of translating from the original languages into English, um, unless you know you happen to be somebody who's reading it in the Greek and Hebrew. Uh, but in either case, you're still, you know, mediated with the 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 copying process. Now, as we've you know as we've talked about um, over the the last several weeks, this does not prevent us from having the Word of God. We have a uh, sufficiently well preserved. Uh, copy of both the Old and New Testament, then we can have great confidence that what we have is the Word of God. You know, there may be a handful of places where we're not quite sure what was actually said. Usually, it's like, well, we've got an option. You know, it's it's either option A or option B or maybe option C. You know, but we're pretty certain this is what the Word of God says all the way through. Um, you know, we can have great confidence in that, and that's you know that is what the the Chicago statement. Um, tells us here. Um, and there's also the the issue of, of translation. And we've talked about uh, translation to some degree. Um, one thing that's interesting, um, I do want to talk a little bit more about uh, translation, um, is uh, there, there's a, a statement, I, I know I've quoted extensively from Bart Ehrman. Um, he made a statement in the introduction to his book, uh, Misquoting Jesus, that I thought was absolutely fascinating. Um, and I kind of been saving it for this moment here. He says, "What good does it do to say that the words are inspired by God if most people have absolutely no access to these words, but only to more or less clumsy renderings of these words into a language such as English that has nothing to do with the original words?" Now I kind of wish I had the overhead projector here just to like focus on some of the wording here. Um, and in all honesty. I suspect that Ehrman would temper his statement if he was asked about it, because I don't think even he believes the extreme level of what he just said here. Um, but you know, to say that we have absolutely no access to these words, and to say that our translation has nothing to do with the original words—I mean, that's pretty extreme. Um, and you know, and I think in a sense. Ehrman is deliberate in using that extreme language because he really wants to persuade people you really can't have any idea what the Word of God says. Um, his, his book isn't primarily about translation, but he does just kind of throw that out there um, in his introduction. Um, but such a skeptical view of translation would make communication between different languages impossible. I mean, if you, if you think about it, I mean, it's like just t aside from the Bible, um, I, you know, I know there are people in this room that speak more than one language. Uh, you know, the reality is, you can communicate, you know, between you know different languages. I mean, that's just our everyday human experience shows that. Um, there is no question that some nuance is lost when something is translated from one language to another. I mean, that's just that's just the way it works. Uh, but the translation is still essentially the same communication as the original. I mean, you, you can communicate. If you have an idea in one language, you can translate it. If you know both languages, you can translate it into the other language. Um, you know, 
to where it's essentially the same. You may have to explain a lot more if you want somebody to get all of the nuances, um, but uh, you're, you're able to translate. I mean, we just wouldn't be able to function in this world if that wasn't the case. Um, so if, th if this wasn't the case, uh, we would expect the apostles to have made the Old Testament uh, quotations, to made all of their Old Testament quotations in Hebrew and expected Christians to learn uh, the language in order to be able to understand the quotations. I mean, wouldn't that be the necessary consequence if you if you just can't, you know, trust translations at all? Uh, then, you know, then why would Paul have ever quoted anything in Greek? Um, he would have said, here's what the Word of God actually says, and he would have quoted it out in Hebrew. Um, and if you want to know, well, you just got to learn Hebrew, because that's, you know, otherwise you just can't have any idea what they, the words are. Um, uh, but we see that the apostles viewed the Old Testament uh, in uh, translated into Greek as communicating the words of God. That's the way they treated it. They treated their Greek quotations of the Old Testament as being the very word of God, um, even though it's not, it's not the original Hebrew. Um, now, again, we want to affirm that when we're talking about inerrancy, um, you know, no translation is perfect, and so, you know, you can't say, oh, well, I just proved that inerrancy is wrong because something's, you know, something's mistranslated here. Um, the, the reality is when we talk about inerrancy, you know, theologians are very careful to say, like, we're talking about inerrancy in the original languages. Um, so uh, it's, it is the, the, the Greek of the New Testament, the Hebrew of the Old Testament, that is what is inerrant. Um, but that doesn't prevent translations from being properly referred to as the Word of God. Um, even though you always still have to be aware of the possibility that your translation has some error in it, and you've got to you know, look into that. I mean, that's why um, it's very useful. I know we talked about you know, using multiple translations. It's very useful to look at multiple translations uh, because if somebody mistranslates something, chances are not every English translation of the Bible is going to mistranslate that exact same thing. Somebody's probably going to get it right. Um, you know, at least you'll you'll be you'll be made more aware of uh, possible issues with mistranslation. Um, so we can trust that we have the Word of God in English, uh, but we still want to reserve the fact that the that that uh, the inerrancy applies um, only to the original languages. Any questions about that? Yeah, it's just interesting. Bart Ehrman's logic in, in that yes. because it's like he's like saying you don't have the original manuscripts so you can't say that this is the word of God mm -hmm. but if he doesn't have the original manuscripts he cannot say definitively this is not the word of God the, well, it's the same is equally so because you know God could have like you said overseen this and the whole process you've been talking about mm -hmm. and therefore we have this in front of us but mm -hmm. he's saying that's not the case but yet he can't say that definitively if he doesn't have the original manuscript. Right. So it's sort of sort of a ridiculous statement. In, yeah. In one I sense. mean, he, he will admit. I mean, you know, one of his favorite things to say is, you know, we don't know. I mean, that's that's something he loves to say. Is you know, it's right. Basically, I mean, it's just the ultimate skeptic is like, you know, yeah. we, we just don't know. You know, and he'll point to you know the 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 copyist errors we've seen and say, well, look, we see we see lots of copyist errors, so. They're probably made a bunch of copyist errors that we've never seen because we just don't have 
you know, enough manuscripts. And so we have no way of knowing what the original was. Um, but, I mean, there he's, he's, you know, purely speculating. Well, his arguments but, are always from silence. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, that's the thing. It's like we bring evidence and he brings no evidence. He right. just says, yeah. well, this could be. Right. It just, yeah. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> he's a to, little irritating. <laughs> to, try to, to try to be fair, I mean, he brings, I guess, what I would call circumstantial evidence. Because it's like he can he can look at the evidence and say, look, we have evidence of copyist errors, right. so we know this type of thing happened. But you're right that when it comes right down to it, and he says, well, the really the reason we can't know, I mean, we can do textual criticism and figure out, you know, the text to a large degree, but the reason we really can't know is because of our lack of of first century and second century manuscripts. Yeah. You know that if we if we had you know, if we had first-century manuscripts, then we could actually know that we have the Word of God. Um, but you know, I mean, really, he would still just it, again. It's like he had that quote. I don't remember exactly what it was now, but it was it was, it was like something like he had to be within the first week. Yeah, yeah, it was like it was yeah, like, it was like ten, ten, ten so it copies. Shows that he doesn't. He's not reasonable. In this ten form. copies within a week that are just nearly perfect. They're basically perfect. So I mean, in a sense, like. You know, if you could push him all the way back, he would still say, "Well, we don't know." And you know, again, you're right that it's he like up saying it has to be the autograph. He he doesn't he doesn't um, he doesn't actually present evidence, but I mean, he does present some evidence that's circumstantial evidence. But then he tries to read it back into an area where we just don't have evidence. Um, so, yeah, so that's that is a good point. Um, but Bart Ehrman, uh, again, as I have said, if you read his book, he very clearly has a motive. He wants to get people to not trust the Bible as the Word of God. Ben? Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> to pick on him a little bit more in his statements. Uh, but I, it's not like the Bible is the only book that's ever been translated also. Mm-hmm. There have been so many books translated, working through translation issues and having multiple translations of, like the Odyssey, for example, or something like that. People look at that and they don't think, oh, I don't have the Odyssey. Like they, they realize they have the overall uh, nature of it, right? Mm-hmm. And, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of curious, does Bart Urban have his book translated into any other languages? I, I'm, I'm sure he does. <laughs> yeah. So. so does he think that they don't have, really have access to what he said? Or <laughs> right. Yeah, I know. I don't think he, I, I don't think he would say that, and and that's why uh, like I I tried to be fair to him and say that I suspect that he would temper the statement if you asked him directly about it, um, I you know, and then he would he would say, well, okay, you know, I I I'm, here I'm speculating about what he would say, but I think he would say something along the lines of, well, um, you know, we we have we have some access, but it's limited access, and you know that our English has some relevance to the original words, but it doesn't give you the full definition of the original words. I think if he was careful, he would probably admit that. If you would, if you would ask him directly and he was being careful, he would admit that. But, um, of course, he's intending to, to persuade people, and so he's, he's using all the big language here. Um, and that's, that's probably why you have it so extreme. But I just, when I read that statement, I was just like, Wow, it's like I mean, how do how do different nations even like have diplomatic discussions in our day if you know if translation is that uncertain? Um, you know, I 
It's interesting. I, I was reading a, a book um, on some of the uh, early American history, um, and I, th- I believe it was the the Lewis and Clark expedition, where um, they uh, they had the, the where they would meet Indians, and they, the the Indians would speak to a translator they had that knew the Indian language and knew French, who would then speak to somebody who knew French and English, and then the person who knew French and English would then translate it into English for for the you know the, the American exploration party. And it's just like the you know the steps that that had to go through is like I imagine it was kind of garbled by the time it got to the end, but even then they were able to communicate with people. I mean you can, you know, translate things and and get the idea across. I mean, obviously, the the more languages you go through, the worse it gets. But, um, but yeah, I mean, all of our society that's you know it's multilingual is, you know, it's predicated on the idea that you can translate things between languages and get the essentials of what's being said. So, anyway. Um, so let's uh, let's look at the the next article here, uh, Article 11. Um, it says we affirm that Scripture, having been given by divine inspiration, is infallible, so that far from misleading us, it is true and reliable in all matters it addresses. And we deny that it is possible for the Bible to be at the same time infallible and errant in its assertions. Infallibility and inerrancy may be distinguished, but not separated. Now, this could be a somewhat confusing statement, and you know, a lot of times we use infallibility and inerrancy, you know, as if they're synonyms. Um, but there have been, you know, people uh, who have, who have, who have basically said, "Well, I believe that the Bible's infallible, but that doesn't necessarily mean that there's no errors in it." Um, so let's let's uh, let's define these words. Uh, infallible signifies uh, the quality of neither misleading nor being misled, and so safeguards in categorical terms the truth that holy scripture is a sure, safe, and reliable rule and guide in all matters. And then um, inerrant signifies the quality of being free from all falsehood or mistake. And so safeguards the truth that the Holy Scripture is entirely true and trustworthy in all its assertions. Um, but the idea is, it's like, well, Scripture is infallible. It's not going to lead me astray. Um, and so I can read the Word of God, and, and it's going to guide me to a correct understanding of things. But I don't have to believe everything it says. It's still going to guide me true. It's not going to lead me into error, but I can reject things that it says about history, about science. Uh, that would be the idea that some people would try to present, saying, "Well, yes, I believe in the infallibility of Scripture." Well, that sounds great, and it's like, but I don't believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. I believe it contains error. Um, so it's important that we affirm both things: that the Bible is infallible um, and that it's inerrant. Um, but, it, I mean, if you took this position, and I think we've talked about this before, but, like, how could you determine what is true and what is an error? Um, you know, if you're going to say, well, I believe that the Bible is infallible, it's not going to lead me astray, I, I read it, I learn about uh, Jesus, I learn about salvation, but, you know, that whole thing about a historical Adam, 
Um, no, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna buy that. I think that was just a, an error that you know they they had a false understanding about the beginning of humanity, and so that's what they put in there. But I can I can reject that and still believe that the Bible is not gonna lead me astray. It's like, well, how do you determine which parts of the Bible you say yes, I'm gonna believe this? You know, this leads me to salvation, and the parts of the Bible say, well, I can reject that. That was just an error back then. Um, and I think ultimately. What it's going to lead to is affirming the Bible when it agrees with what you already think and rejecting it when it doesn't. So basically, the, you know, that position is going to have, have you know, these people coming to the Bible with their idea of how reality is already worked out. And then they read the Bible and anytime they see something in the Bible, it's like, yeah, I agree with that. Well, that must be, you know, God leading me to the truth. And anything that I think isn't right, I was like, oh, well, that's just one of the places where they made a mistake. Um, and then, then the Bible doesn't really teach you anything. It's just a reflection of your own views. Um, so it's important that we, you know, that we view the Bible uh, not only as infallible, but also being inerrant. So that even the parts that don't necessarily agree with what we come to it with, we're the ones that are changed. We're forced to say, okay, that's what God says. I have to change my thinking to conform to what God says um, rather than just believing what I want and claiming the Bible as, as some kind of endorsement. Any thoughts or comments about that? Okay, moving on to the next article, article uh, 12. Um we affirm that scripture in its entirety is inerrant, being free from all falsehood, fraud, or deceit. We deny that biblical infallibility and inerrancy are limited to spiritual, religious, or redemptive themes, exclusive of assertions in the fields of history and science. We further deny that scientific hypotheses about uh, earth history may properly be used to overturn the teaching of scripture on creation and the flood. So, again, just another affirmation um, on um, the entire truthfulness of Scripture. Um, but then here we get to the way that people often approach this when they want to take some parts of the Bible as true and other parts of the Bible as false, is they will focus in on say, well, okay, if you want to know how I determine what it is that I have to believe out of the Bible and what I can say is false, well, what it comes down to is if it's spiritual things, if it's things about the nature of God or about salvation or about morality, well, maybe not about morality, but, you know, just, you know, the, the, the spiritual things, those are the things that I have to believe. But when it's recording things about history, about science, well, it's like, well, the, you know, those aren't necessarily true. Um, so I'm, I'm free to reject those. I can, uh, you know, look at, you know, our modern view of Darwinian evolution and say, well, that's just not compatible with what uh, the Bible teaches about the, the creation of mankind, and, um, the creation of the world. It's, it's uh, and, you know, and so I'm going to follow our science and say that the Bible is wrong in these areas. Well, we really have to, if we're going to understand the Bible to be the Word of God, we have to take it all as being true, um, even the parts that don't fit with current theories of science. Um, and uh, last time I talked uh, a little bit about Jesus' view of Scripture, um, and you know, we 
rightly came to the conclusion that if Jesus had a wrong view of Scripture, then, you know, our salvation is gone, the deity of Christ is gone, basically all of Christianity is gone. So basically, whatever Jesus' view of Scripture is, we're going to say that's correct. Otherwise, we're just going to pack up and go home. And Jesus did not just cite the Old Testament and say, oh, well, the spiritual truths taught in the Old Testament are true. He actually addressed things like who wrote particular books of the Bible, historical events, things like that. I'm just going to go through this list. It's a whole litany of things. And I didn't compile this. Somebody else did, but I thought it was really good. So Jesus attributed Isaiah 6 to Isaiah in Matthew 13, 14. He attributed Psalm 110 to David in Matthew 24, 44. He attributed Daniel 11, 31 to Daniel in Matthew 24, 15. He attributed the law of uh, he attributed the law to Moses in John chapter five, verse 46. He affirmed as historical fact God's creation of human beings in Matthew 19, four through five. Abel's murder in Matthew 23, 35. The flood in Matthew 24, 37 through 39. Uh, the history of the patriarchs uh, in Matthew 22, 32 and John 8, 56. The destruction of Sodom. Uh, Matthew 11:23 and Luke 17:28 to33. Uh, the burning bush appearing to Moses in Luke 20 verse 37. Uh, the serpent in the wilderness, John 3:14. Uh, the manna being given to the people of Israel, John 6:32. Uh, the histories of Elijah and Naaman in Luke chapter 4 verses 25 to 27. The story of Jonah with the uh, uh, the great fish, um, often one that's criticized by people, um, in Matthew chapter 12, verses 39 through 41. Uh, he appealed to the Old Testament for church discipline in Matthew 18, 16. Marriage in Matthew 19, 3 through 9. God's requirements for eternal life in Matthew 19, 16 through 19. Uh, the greatest commandment in Matthew 22, verses 37 through 39. Uh, he justified the cleansing of the temple in Matthew uh 21 through uh, 21, 12 through 17, by appeal to the Old Testament. He appealed to the Old Testament uh, for justifying the picking of grain on the Sabbath in uh, Luke chapter 6, verses 3 through 4. And he relied on Scripture to resist the temptations of Satan, Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Now, I mean, that's a, that's a whole lot of stuff, and if you want the references so you can look them up, I can provide them. But um, Jesus obviously viewed the Old Testament as being the very word of God and true in everything that it affirmed, regardless of what category you put those things in. Um, simply put, I mean, it's like, if we're going to follow Jesus, if we're going to be uh, Christians, then we have to have a view of Scripture uh, that everything in it is the word of God, is true and inerrant. Ben? Uh, I mean, I, I think with a lot of people who think like this, they're like, there's spiritual significance you can learn from these stories, but in the end, they're just stories or something like that. They're myths. I'm sorry. Uh, in the end, they're just stories. They're just myths for learning those spiritual truths. Right. Um, but yet, yeah, Jesus obviously saw these things as true, but it's, it's yes, there are spiritual truths that run from these things because it's God revealing himself through history would be uh, part of the answer, part of the response to people who say this. Mm -hmm. 
and that, that just because there are spiritual truths doesn't make it all just spiritual and the physical right not important yeah yeah i mean there's there's people who attempt to do it with the old and new testament um and you know and, uh like uh john dominic Crossan. Uh, i imagine some of you have heard of him he's famous for uh for saying it's a parable dummy um and he's not speaking to somebody else as a dummy it's, he's speaking to himself you know basically where he's he's trying to interpret scripture and he's struggling with you know the supernatural things that are happening particularly like with the resurrection of jesus and uh, he finally comes to the conclusion it's like oh why am i trying to make this you know make sense with modern science it's a parable dummy so he's calling himself a dummy so it's not he's not trying to be disrespectful um and, and so he's come to this conclusion it's like well this stuff isn't actually historical reality it's like the resurrection is the the story of jesus's resurrection is just trying to tell me something um spiritual and it's not actually saying that jesus physically rose from the dead um and so yeah people could like appeal to you know all of these various events that jesus is you know is quoting from the old testament and say oh well they teach us some spiritual truth so that's really all that matters it you know it could be just a parable i mean there's some things that jesus taught where he taught a parable uh where he's just like you know he just starts talking about you know a man did this or you know whatever you know a sower went and was casting out seed you know it's like is he actually talking about a historical event there probably not he's just telling a story um but um if you you know if you pay attention to what's actually being said in so many instances jesus is looking at these stories from the old testament and he's viewing them as historical reality, that these things actually happened, um, not just that they are a story with some spiritual significance. So, yeah, that's a great point, Ben. All right. Um, article 13 um, it says, We affirm the propriety of using inerrancy as a theological term with reference to the complete truthfulness of Scripture. And we deny that it is proper to evaluate scripture according to the standards of truth and error that are alien to its usage and purpose. We further deny that inerrancy is negated by biblical phenomena such as a lack of modern technical precision, irregularities of grammar or spelling, observational descriptions of nature, the reporting of falsehoods, the use of hyperbole and round numbers, topical arrangement of material, uh, variant selections of material in parallel accounts, uh, or the use of free citations. So this is uh, this is more in line with what uh, Ben had raised uh, that I was thinking about before. Um, so it's important that we understand what inerrancy is not. Because um, I mean, like for example, one of the things listed here is the reporting of falsehoods, and that's one specifically we talked about last time, where. Uh, if people tell a lie, the Bible can record that they told a lie. Um, you know, and if you cite that one little thing, and you say, "Oh well, look, look the Bible contains an error," um, and that's that's not what we mean by inerrancy. Um, the, these things can be, you know, falsehoods can be reported in Scripture without the report of the falsehood being in any way an error. Um, it is um, really interesting the way that people in our day uh, tend to approach the Bible uh, just in terms of like it talks about um, you know the lack of, of modern technical precision or the use of free citations um, if you look at the way that you know that people write books today um, versus the way that people wrote books centuries ago 
um, there's a big difference. And if you if you read you know a modern history book um, and the way that things are are presented in that book, and you know that's the only book you've ever read, and then you go and you try to read the Bible and you try to say, oh well, it was it was intended to be written the same way as this modern history book you're going to be just thoroughly confused because that's just not the way that people wrote back then. Um, this is one of the one of the reasons it's really helpful to read books uh, that were not written in the century that we live in. Um, I know uh, C.S. Lewis is famous for uh, making observations that uh, you really ought to read books outside of your century. Um, if I remember right, his, his ideal was like for every book you read, in you know, in your own century, you you know, read read a book from from some other century. I think he said like, if you can't pull that off, then you know, out of every three books you read in your century, read one in another century. Uh, but I mean, as somebody who who did a lot of reading from previous centuries, C.S. Lewis really realized that like, there's just things you're gonna miss if you're only reading um, what's written in the current time period. And the way books were written was just vastly different back then. I mean, free citations, you know, we have quotation marks that we use. And if you don't get exactly what somebody said, you know, then, you know, they might be suing you for libel or something like that. Um, the, the reality is that in previous times, it was very common to just paraphrase what somebody said. And you're not saying, look, they said these exact words. Um, and, and we see that in the Bible. We see places where the Bible doesn't necessarily provide exactly what the person said, um, but that it's, you know, it's a, it's a free citation. Um, and in fact, frequently it's translation. Um, you know, it's, you know, it's in Greek, but, you know, the person may have been speaking Aramaic. Um, we do sometimes see where, like, an exact quote is provided in Aramaic, and, you know, then you, presumably that, at that point they're providing an exact quote, but... It was just very common to cite what people were saying without being absolutely precise, and you know, and sometimes even modern books will do that. Um, but uh, usually, if they do, they'll they'll give you a warning saying, you know, hey, this is this is constructed from memory, and it may not be exactly what they said, but it gets the gist of, of what they were saying. Um, but uh, but that's I mean that's definitely something that we should consider and. You know, if it's not precise, um, that doesn't mean that there's that there's some kind of error in the scripture. That's just the way people wrote back then. Um, there, you know, there are times that the biblical authors didn't use the best grammar. Um, you know, or they may have spelled things a little different. I mean, to some degree, it's hard to tell just because spelling errors are one of the most common things that we have in terms of copyist errors. Yeah. You know, Chris, uh, the the reality is, critics that, that bring up these kind of things really don't take into. A, I mean, they're really sort of like using a different standard to mm -hmm. judge the Bible than because, like, I could say over lunch today as I'm having lunch with other people, you know, just like Chris said this morning in Sunday school, and then I say something. Mm -hmm. Well, it doesn't necessarily mean that that's a direct quote, but it's giving right. the gist. So, you know, right. we use these kind sure. of things that the sure. Bible does all the time. Sure. You know, so it's 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 a little. Ridiculous. I don't know to right. to really sort of come up with the false yeah paradigm yeah. by which to judge it. You know. Yeah. No. I mean, I, I think I think you are right. I mean, I think I think there is a tendency to think that like if somebody's writing like an academic level history book that like they're going to be you know pretty much you know providing exact quotes or letting you know if they're not. So um, you know 
if people try to use those standards and push it back, then then yeah, they're um, they're putting standards on the Bible that that aren't appropriate. But yeah, if they just realize it's like in our everyday speech, uh, which is probably a little bit more like the way that they um, they handled writing in those days. It's like it's just it is very common in our everyday speech to just give the gist of what somebody said. Um, so yeah, that's a that's a good point. Um, observational descriptions of nature is another thing that's brought up. I mean, and this is again, this is something that's just like was commonly used today. I mean, it's like if you know you look at the news, you look at the weather, whatever they're gonna they're gonna say you know sunrise at you know whatever time it is today. Nobody ever says okay the. Um, you know the the Earth's rotation is going to to hit the point where you know we can see the sun at this particular time. Just people don't do that. Um, they they still speak of sunrise, even though we we realize that the reason the sun is rising is just because of the rotation of the Earth. Uh, the Bible is the same way. The Bible constantly uses language that's just it's it's just the the observational description of the way things are. Um, without trying to make any kind of claim about scientifically how things are actually happening. Um, so um, we, we may, we may um, delve into these a little bit more. We are out of time, um, but, and we are going to continue with a few more um, of the articles of, uh, of the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy next week. But um, hopefully that gives us at least a nice introduction uh, to uh, the doctrine of biblical inerrancy, and uh, then, Lord willing, next week we will finish that up. So let's uh, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you uh, that we have uh, your perfect word, that uh, you have given us absolute truth that we can uh, that we can ground our beliefs and live our lives by, um, and God, that um, we don't. Uh, have to pick and choose uh, to try to decide what uh, is actually from you and, and what is the errors of men. Um, and uh, Lord, sometimes that's a challenge to us because your word will challenge us and will say things to us that, uh, that we, may, uh, we may not want to believe. And I gotta just pray that you would give us submissive hearts, that we would trust your word, that we would uh, rely on it, that we would let it change our understanding and um, God, just that you would, um, just by your power, that you would um, work through uh, your word, uh, through us reading it, through uh, the proclamation of it. Lord, even as we uh, are prepared to hear uh, the word of God proclaimed this morning, God, just that you would, by your, by your Holy Spirit, that you would uh, cause your word to have its effect to transform the lives of your people. And Lord, just that you would be honored in all things. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat>